You're listening to the Good News in the Dark World podcast. Join us as we study God's Word and discover Jesus on every page. Here's Pastor Kevin. Matthew chapter 2. We will uh, begin reading at verse 13, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And if you uh, make a habit of underlining or writing in your Bibles, look for the word fulfill or fulfilled. Maybe underline it every time you see it because there's a really fascinating connection that Matthew is making here in this passage. Matthew 2, uh, beginning at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. The Bible is unlike any other religious book in all the world. Written in multiple language, languages over a period of 2,000 years by 40 different authors three different continents. And yet there is this incredible unity and harmony to the Word of God. And that is because it is God Himself who is the author of Scripture. I bring this up this morning because we are going to see this unity firsthand in this passage. How all of Scripture is weaved together so perfectly. How the Old Testament and New Testament are so beautifully connected to teach one grand and glorious truth that should leave us all amazed at the harmony of the Word of God. Now last week we saw the, the Magi coming from the east looking for the baby Jesus. And, and when Herod hears of their search, he, he calls them to himself and he says to them, I want you to go find out where this baby is born and where he is because I too want to worship him. Now children, we know that that was a lie, right? Herod did not want to worship the baby Jesus. He wanted to kill the baby Jesus. 
And so the Magi go and they find the baby in Bethlehem, but they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and so they return home by another route. And that's the context for the passage we're looking at this morning. And as we look at these verses, there are really three parts to it. And all three of these parts have a very powerful Old Testament connection. First of all, there is the exodus to Egypt. Second, there is the rage of Herod. And then third, there is the return to Nazareth. The exodus to Egypt, the rage of Herod, and the return to Nazareth. Passage begins and an angel comes to Joseph in a dream. Now, these are not dreams as we know them. Dreams in the Bible were self-conscious or semi-conscious state where an angel comes and brings communication from God. We find these throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, men like Daniel and Jacob and Joseph, even Pharaoh, were communicated to by dreams. In the New Testament, uh, you can think of Peter on the rooftop in Joppa in the book of Acts receiving a dream. And so the angel comes to Joseph, and, and notice what he says in verse 13. He says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Joseph, Herod is looking for this baby. He wants to kill him, and you need to get out of here. Now, one of the great truths of Scripture is that no one and nothing can thwart the plans of God. No, no matter what Herod may want to do, he is not going to stop God's plan. Even when things look bleak, even when a powerful man like Herod is trying to kill someone, God is always in complete control. Isaiah chapter 46 I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. On a practical level, this should be incredibly comforting to you. To know that there is nothing, there is nothing that can stop God's purposes. In your life, in my life, in this entire world, not even a wicked, powerful tyrant like Herod can thwart the purposes of God. And so Joseph is told to go to Egypt. Now, this trip to Egypt would have been a rather lengthy trip for them to make. It would have been about 75 miles to the Egyptian border and then about another 100 miles into the heart of Egypt. So they're going to make a trip of about 175 miles. Now today, we can make that trip in a car by in about two and a half or three hours. Obviously, no cars back then, and so this is a trip that would have taken many days, even many weeks, especially with a baby. And so that's what Joseph does. He takes the baby, he takes Mary, and they head for Egypt, and they will stay there until Herod dies. But then there is this statement that we find in the middle of verse 15. Notice what it says. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now what prophet is that talking about? It's talking about the prophet Hosea, specifically Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, 
where it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, here's what's interesting. In Hosea, that's not really a prophecy. In Hosea, that statement, out of Egypt I called my son, is talking about something that happened in the past. It's referring to Israel being brought out of Egyptian slavery. We know that God's people in the book of Exodus had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And, and God brought them out from there. He delivered them from Egypt. He did it through the ten plagues, right? Children, do you remember what those ten plagues were? Water turned to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, dead livestock, boils, hail, darkness. And, and all of this led up to the final plague, which was the death of the firstborn. But God gave Israel a way of escape. They were to take the blood of an unblemished lamb and put it on the doorposts of their homes. And when the Lord saw that blood, he would spare that home. And, and God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt reached its grand climax at the Red Sea. As God parted the Red Sea, Israel passed safely through and Pharaoh and his army were drowned. Now here's what's interesting. Matthew takes what Hosea said in Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son, and he applies it to Jesus. It's like Matthew is saying, do you want to know what that passage in Hosea was ultimately referring to? Do you want to know where that passage finds its ultimate fulfillment? That passage finds its ultimate fulfillment not in the exodus from Egypt, but in Jesus. In other words, Israel's experience of being brought out of Egypt is a picture of Christ. Now you might say, well, how is that a picture of Christ? Well, very simply, just as God saved his people by delivering them out of Egypt in the Old Testament, God saves his people by bringing the deliverer out of Egypt in the New Testament. And, and really, as we make our way through Matthew's gospel, we are going to continue to see these parallels between Israel and Jesus as the true and better Israel. In, in fact, it's, it's really rather remarkable when you think about this. Like Israel, Jesus was sought to be killed by a wicked tyrant. Pharaoh in the Old Testament, Herod here. Like Israel, Jesus came out of Egypt here in Matthew 2. Like Israel, Jesus passed through the waters, Matthew 3. Like Israel, Jesus was tested in the wilderness, Matthew 4. Like Israel, Jesus ascends a mountain and gives his law to his people, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew doesn't want you to miss this very important truth that Jesus relives the history of Israel. There is, however, a huge difference. Unlike Israel, Jesus passed the test. He is the true son. He is the true Israel. And because of that, he is perfectly qualified to be our deliverer. He is perfectly qualified to fulfill Matthew 1.21 where he would save his people from their sins. 
where Old Testament Israel failed, the true Israel, Jesus Christ, succeeded. And I hope this morning that all of us can see the the practical application of this. I hope we can see how relevant this is really for the state of our souls. How, How can you be assured that God will preserve you in his love? How can you be certain that that God will never cast you away? How can you be sure that nothing and no one will ever separate you from your God? Well, if you trust in Christ for your salvation, if you are in Christ by true faith, your redemption, the Bible says, has been accomplished forever. Jesus Christ, Christian, your Savior, went into Egypt for you. He went into the place of slavery for you in order to set you free. The Father spared him from the murderous plot of Herod, and and Christ came out of Egypt to live a life of perfect obedience, to die upon the cross, to rise from the dead in order to purchase your eternal freedom completely and forever. If you are in Christ by true faith, you are secure. And because we so easily forget this, we need to hear this gospel message over and over and over. So that's the first thing we see. Number two is the rage of Herod. At this point, Herod realizes he's been tricked by the Magi. Verse 16 tells us that he becomes furious. This word furious is a very strong word. It can be translated enraged. What's interesting is that the the word is in the original language. It's in what's called the passive voice. In other words, the, the picture that's being painted for us here is that Herod has lost control. He's lost control of his emotions. He's he's taken over by rage. Again, as we looked at last week, this this baby who was born king of the Jews was a huge threat to Herod. Herod's all about preserving his power. Remember I told you last week he murdered some of his wives, he murdered some of his sons because they were a threat to him, and now he needs to find this king of the Jews and he needs to murder him. His first option, having the Magi track the baby down, is gone. And so he turns to option two. Notice the middle of verse 16. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. One question that often gets asked about this is, does this mean that Jesus was about two years old at this time? Why else would Herod want to kill all the baby boys two and under? In all likelihood, Jesus is about six months old at this time. But by targeting all the boys two and under, Herod figures he can't miss. Surely that's enough margin for error to make sure that he gets this baby, that he would be killed. Herod isn't about to take any chances. And so he's going to annihilate all the baby boys two and under. What a vile, wicked thing this is. These are the lengths to which some will go to preserve their power. 
What a terrifying thing this must have been. I have a grandson who's 23 months old. Some of you have children who are two or under, grandchildren who are two and under. Imagine how helpless you would feel if you had a son who was age two or younger. Here come Herod's men, and there's nothing you can do as they kill your baby boy. Behind this, of course, is a great spiritual battle. Behind all of this is the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God. In fact, this great battle is pictured for us in a very graphic way in the very last book of the Bible. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn for just a moment to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, and notice verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What's being pictured for us here is the church throughout history. That's the woman. And the dragon is the great opponent of the church, the devil himself. And the devil knows that the Messiah will come from God's people. And and so his desire throughout redemptive history, and you, you can read this all throughout the Old Testament, his desire is to destroy the people of God in order to prevent the Messiah from coming into this world. And here in Matthew 2, the devil, through Herod, is ready and waiting to devour that child as soon as he is born. But as we know, Herod's plan is ultimately futile. Psalm 2 says, The nations rage, and the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Isn't that exactly what we see here in Matthew 2? The kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. But then Psalm 2 says this, He who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. Very important to remember that, isn't it? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The absolute vanity of man's opposition to God. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that all is going to be smooth sailing for Christians and for the church. Satan, 1 Peter 5 says, still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The the church still faces much opposition in this world, much hatred. And so we need to be on guard. We need to stand firm in the faith. But brothers and sisters, we can do so with confidence We can do so with boldness. 
We can do so knowing that he who sits on his throne laughs at the rage of this world. We know who is on the throne, don't we? Well, as Herod massacres these children, Matthew tells us that this too was a fulfillment of prophecy. Notice verse 17. Then was fulfilled, there's that word again, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now the original context for this was Jeremiah 31. And what Jeremiah was referring to there was the the event of the Jews in the 6th century B.C. being deported to Babylon. See, Ramah was a town that was about six miles north of Jerusalem. And it was the place where in the 6th century B.C., many Jews were held prisoner in Ramah before being deported off to Babylon. Now, Rachel is also mentioned here probably because Ramah is the town in which in all likelihood Rachel was buried. You might remember that that Rachel died while giving birth to Benjamin. And Rachel took a a symbolic role for God's people. In fact, the, the rabbis even called Rachel the mother of Israel for all time. And so the picture here that, that Jeremiah is painting in Jeremiah 31 is Rachel is weeping for the children of Israel as they are led off into Babylonian captivity. She's mourning for them as they go into exile. So why does Matthew quote this in connection with Jesus? Well, as D.A. Carson says, Rachel's tears, the tears of the exile, have reached their climax in the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. In other words, the the tears of Rachel weeping over Israel going into captivity in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. have reached their peak as these helpless little boys are slaughtered by Herod. But, But notice that Matthew says that the words of Jeremiah were, verse 17, fulfilled. In other words, with Jesus, these tears will come to an end. In other words, there is hope. In in fact, if you read all of Jeremiah 31, you will notice that the whole chapter is one of great hope. Listen to the words right after Jeremiah says that Rachel will be weeping. Jeremiah 31, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of of the enemy. There is hope for your future, and your children shall come back to their own country. In other words, the Lord through Jeremiah says, don't weep, because God's people are going to come back out of Babylon. But Matthew takes this, And and Matthew says there's an even greater fulfillment of this coming. There is coming one who will deliver his people from their greatest enemies, from sin and death and hell. One author writes this. He says, The tears shed by the mothers in Bethlehem inaugurate the reign of the one who will shed tears of blood for the forgiveness of sin and who will eventually, in the restoration of all things, wipe away every tear. Again, I'm I'm amazed at the harmony of God's Word. 
Matthew weaves Hosea and Jeremiah into his own gospel to point us to that one grand, glorious drama of redemption that God would save his people through his son. And then finally we see the return to Nazareth. Notice the first four words of verse 19. But when Herod died. Those words should make us pause. Those words should make us reflect. The seemingly invincible man. This man who killed wives and sons and anyone who got in his way, this man of great power and influence, this man who executed and slaughtered so many, is now dead. You know, the enemies of the church may appear to be very, very strong. And the church may appear at times to be very, very weak. But Job 20 verse 5 says the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is momentary. It's important to keep that in mind, isn't it? The triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is momentary. Brothers and sisters, the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ are only men. They are only men. By the way, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that Herod died of this. Ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to his recovery. The enemies of the church are only men. And when Herod dies, an angel comes to Joseph again in a dream, and he says in verse 20, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And so they leave Egypt, and they head back to Israel. But at a certain point, we notice that Joseph hears that Archelaus is now ruling. He's taken over for Herod, and Joseph is afraid to go there. Now you might wonder, why is Joseph afraid of Archelaus? Very simply, because Archelaus was a chip off the old block of his father Herod. Apparently during the Passover, right after Herod's death, an insurrection broke out in Jerusalem. Two of Israel's favorite teachers were killed by the Romans. And and so this insurrection breaks out in Jerusalem, and Archelaus, who is now on the throne, he's now in control, put an end to this insurrection and rebellion by slaughtering 3,000 Jews, just wiped them out. In other words, he was much like his father. And so you can see why why Joseph would be afraid of returning to Judea. And, And his concerns are confirmed when he is warned in a dream not to go there. And that brings us to the last verse, verse 23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew's already talked about two specific prophets. He's he's talked about Hosea. He's talked about Jeremiah. Here in verse 23, he mentions the prophets, plural. In fact, this is now the third time you probably notice that this word fulfilled is used cluing us in on this great connection with the Old Testament. But here's the problem. There's no prophecy 
about Nazareth anywhere in the Bible. Nazareth is never even mentioned in the Old Testament. And so we say, Matthew, how can you say that this was fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? Makes no sense. Well, first of all, notice that Matthew speaks in a rather generic way. He doesn't mention a specific prophet. There's no direct quotation from any Old Testament prophet as there is in verse 15 and verse 17. The point that Matthew is making here, I think, is this. The basic message of the Old Testament prophets is that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. Now, to understand what that means, we need to know something about the little town of Nazareth. The town of Nazareth was not a very well-respected place. It was a town of no consequence. People from Nazareth were generally made fun of. They were mocked. They were looked down upon. In fact, you might remember a dialogue between Nathanael and Philip in John chapter 1. Philip finds Nathanael, and he says to Nathanael, We found the Messiah. And and you remember what Nathanael says to Philip. He says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything of any importance, any significance come from that place? That's how Nazareth was viewed. To to have the Messiah, the long-awaited king and savior, come from Nazareth, what a letdown. And yet that's how Jesus came. He came as one who was ignored. He came as one who was despised. He came as one who was obscure. He came as one who was seemingly insignificant. And really, isn't that what the Old Testament prophets tell us about Jesus? Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Psalm 22, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. That the Messiah would come from humble means. That he would be scorned and rejected. That he would be seen as someone insignificant. That is the message of the Old Testament. And that's what Matthew means when he says that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Brothers and sisters, this was the humility of our Savior. He was despised, he was rejected. He was mocked, he was scorned, and finally he was killed. And he did it, he did it all to accomplish our deliverance. To set us free from slavery to sin and to give us life eternal. None of this is based on anything that we do. None of it is based on our work for him. It is all based on his work for us. Now today, Jesus does not still still suffer in humiliation. He rose from the grave 
He ascended into heaven. He rules and he reigns as the king over all things. And one day he will come again in glory, not in humiliation, but in glory to take us to himself. But until that day, let us remember that his pattern, suffering and then glory, is our pattern as well. Because we too will suffer in this life. We too will be mocked in this life. We will be scorned in this life. The Apostle John says in 1 John 3, don't be surprised when this world hates you. Jesus himself said in in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. But we endure these things joyfully, counting it our privilege to suffer for the one who suffered for us. And as we do that, we cling to the words of 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. And may we endure this longing for the day when our Savior will come again. And on that day, he will not come in humiliation. He will come in power and in glory. Are you ready for that day? Are you trusting not in yourself, not in your own righteousness, not in your own efforts? Are you trusting in Christ? On that day, Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has even imagined, that is what God has prepared for those who love him. What a wonderful, marvelous passage where Matthew weaves together all of these Old Testament prophets and teachings to show us that the one grand story of Scripture is that God would do whatever was necessary to save his people from their sins so that he would receive all the glory. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, that the one who orchestrated all things in order to preserve the line of promise all through the Old Testament, the one who orchestrated all things to preserve the Messiah as he came into this world, as he weaved together so perfectly all of Scripture, will he fail on any of his promises to you? No, he will not. And so lift up your hearts and rejoice that this is your God. And one day, one day hopefully soon, he will take us to himself. Let's bow in prayer. If you've been blessed by this podcast and would like to support this ministry, you can find us at www.goodnewsinadarkworld.com. Thank you for listening.